Joe there and thanks for listening to RT Radio 1's Davis Now Lectures podcast with me, Cleon and Ianlun. This episode features an archive talk by Irish historian Professor Dermot Ferreter from the 2002 Thomas Davis Lecture Series, The University of the People, which marked the 100th anniversary of the Carnegie Libraries in Ireland. Ferreter's talk entitled The Post-War Public Library Service in Ireland, Bring Books to the Remotest Hamlets and the Hills refers to a speech made by Erskine Childers, future President of Ireland, and who in 1947 was Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister for Local Government and Public Health. Childers said that there was no reason why the library service could not become the new nucleus of an adult education movement, how it was not only important for children to read during the long winter nights, but also that people know about their own history, and indeed the complexity of the wider world. Childers went on to say that we can no longer be isolationist since what goes on in China is indirectly of importance to this country. Timely words indeed. Here is Dermot Ferreter. During the mid-1940s, the Carnegie United Kingdom Trust decided to hand over to the Irish government the Irish Central Library for Students in Dublin. The Trust had maintained and governed this library since 1923 in order to supplement the stocks of smaller provincial libraries. This gesture provided the impetus for the 1947 Public Libraries Act. Formally, it was an act to establish a body to be called Uncorla Laurelina, or the Library Council, for the purposes of accepting from the Carnegie Trust the gift of the Irish Central Library for students, of operating a central library and of assisting local authorities to improve their library services. The Central Library had, in effect, represented a partnership between the Carnegie Trust lending books in bulk to schemes in rural districts, and the Agricultural Reference Library, owned by the Horace Plunkett Foundation. Thus, a popular lending service had been combined with a scheme trading in material for agricultural improvement and research. This demand continued to be met by the Library Council until the 1970s. The introduction of the 1947 Act by Erskine Childers, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister for Local Government and Public Health, came at a time when there was a mood of despondency in the public library sector. The 1925 Local Government Act had abolished rural district councils and established county councils as the library authorities. No doubt Erskine Childers was highly embarrassed on taking office to discover that Longford and Westmeath, in his constituency, were the only two Irish counties that had not adopted the county library scheme by the early 1940s, and the two reneging counties were promptly joined. The county library system that took shape as a result of the 1925 Act was, however, woefully inadequate. A situation members of the Library Association of Ireland, established in 1928, were only too aware. It was often left to individuals like the redoubtable Christina Kyo, librarian of the Irish Central Library for Students, to communicate with libraries throughout the country. She was to become something of a spokeswoman on libraries, broadcasting on 2RN in the 1930s and she also compiled a report on public library provision in the Irish Free State in 1935. Debunking the stereotype of the tame librarian, Kyo was trenchant in her cause for a reawakening of public and government interest in libraries, and asserted that the public did not give a damn about the technicalities of libraries, but simply wanted an efficient service. She insisted such a service depends upon the librarian to an extent not generally realised. During the 1930s and 1940s, librarians were enduring conditions in relation to books and buildings that were Victorian and amateurish. 
but there seems to be little political interest in improving the sector. It was difficult to refute the claim of Limerick TD Dunica O'Brien in a dull debate that it was one of the most starved of all the services we have. The government had refused the request of the Library Association of Ireland for a commission of inquiry into the library services in 1937. In 1943, at a meeting in Dublin City Hall, members of the association expressed their frustration and dissatisfaction with the existing public library service, and they submitted a statement to this effect to the Minister for Local Government and Public Health, Sean McEntee. They not only drew attention to the effect of general wartime scarcity on an already suffering service, they also wanted the abolition of the limitation set on the public library rate and a central advisory body to be established by the government to assist the improvement of the library service. Given these demands, it was unsurprising that they broadly welcomed the 1947 Public Libraries Act. In presenting the proposed legislation to the Dáil, Erskine Childers highlighted the deficiencies of the public library service and with the new act seemed to be promising dramatic improvements. The rhetoric he employed was ambitious. There was no reason, he suggested, why the library service could not become what he called the new nucleus of an adult education movement. It was not only important, he said, for children to read during the long winter nights, but also that people know about their own history and indeed the complexity of the wider world. In many cases, he said, they only begin to do that when they reach the age of 25 or 30. He went on to say, we can no longer be isolationists since what goes on in China is indirectly of importance to this country so that the more one learns about foreign countries and their customs and ways, the better. An immense amount of good can be done everywhere, in the remotest hamlet and up in the hills, by improvement of the services. It was a bold aim, and Childers' promised crusade seemed redolent of the insistence many years earlier of George Russell, that a nation can become cultivated only insofar as the average man, not the exceptional person, is cultivated and has knowledge of the thought, imagination and intellectual history of his nation. Childers fears about the lack of suitable reading material were underlined by disappointing figures in relation to library funding and borrowing in Ireland. Prior to the passing of the bill, in a typical county where the library service was relatively well organised, 75,000 books were issued in a year, of which 20% were non-fiction, two-thirds of that 20% relating to travel, biography, history and social science. But the number of active borrowers of the population in a county area varied from between 7 and 15% of the population. In the years before the bill, total expenditure on the library service was a miserly £90,000, of which approximately half was devoted to salaries and one-third to books. But perhaps what was most interesting about the background to the Act of 1947, and indeed the debates that followed it, were what they revealed about cultural attitudes to book reading in independent Ireland. From the 1920s to the 1950s, there was no shortage of advice and directives, particularly from Catholic social activists, on what Irish people should and should not be reading. Allied with this was the development of a censorship mentality, and in some quarters a near obsession with what was regarded as foreign filth. These criticisms from self and government-appointed moral guardians included a castigation of the preference for reading fiction and the fact that young Irish people seemed more drawn towards the cinema. There were 22 million cinema tickets purchased in Ireland in 1939, making Ireland per capita one of the heaviest cinema-going nations in the world. 
The Reverend Meehan, a professor of St. Patrick's College in Maynooth, commented in Unlaurelin, the Journal of the Library Association in 1951, young people are not driven to read, they drive themselves or get driven to the pitchers or the beach. In the Dáil, Labour Party TD Brendan Corish bemoaned the lack of books in the Irish language, which could be substituted for what he called some of the tripe we are used to. When it was pointed out that there was tripe in every language, he replied, I agree, but there is tripe and tripe, and we get the tripe. In the context of the demand for popular fiction, Dermot Foley, former librarian for County Clare and later first director of the Library Council, recalled that in Clare, his library was whipped into serving up an Irish stew of imported westerns and sloppy romances. The real problem, as he saw it, was the operation of censorship, which he believed made a mockery of plans to bring books to the people. A cultivated taste for civilised reading was, he wrote, for an entire generation rejected by a conspiracy of closed minds. It became, he elaborated, a statutory, inexhaustible bean-feast for the bigots and obscurantists and in due time made a dog's dinner of defenceless people who, above all things, badly needed a bit of leadership to lift them out of the morass of ignorance they had for so long endured. The issue of censorship, however, did not loom large in the debates on the bill. The speed with which the Public Library Bill was rushed to the Dáil and Senate was exceptional, and this had much to do with the broad political consensus that existed about the need for a shake-up in the library service. In his opening speech on the bill, Childers acknowledged the work of the Library Association and deplored the fact that the library service had long been regarded as the Cinderella of local services. He made some interesting observations on book-reading habits in different areas. He suggested, In the county town, I will mention no names, a very high proportion of extremely light fiction is read. Away up in the hills, among the people living in mountain farms, a very much higher proportion of excellent literature is read. The hope was that in the future, the more cultivated tastes of the mountain people would become the norm. But for all the talk about the future, there were those with their eyes firmly fixed on the past. Donald Donacha TD, in his contribution to the Dáil debate, had the following to say. Anybody who comes across the beautiful pieces of crochet that used to be made in the rural areas 30 or 40 years ago must admit that the girl who devoted her time to the making of these things was as usefully employed, I would say more usefully employed, than if she were to spend her spare time in reading books. I feel there is a danger that in extending library services we might be overdoing it. I have seen mothers, a few, who got so keen on the reading that they kept their children away from school while they themselves read. The private correspondence of Childers and his civil service team, including that of Tom Barrington, concerning the drafting and passage of the bill, reveal many concerns that did not reach the public domain, particularly concerning the structure of the new council. It was to consist of a chairman and 12 others, but was designed to be predominantly academic, with, ironically, a distinct lack of public library representatives. The original proposal to have two representatives from both Trinity College and the National University of Ireland was promptly shot down by Alfred O'Rahilly of University College Cork, who insisted that each of the three constituent colleges of the NUI should have representation. Childers saw O'Rahilly's criticisms as demonstrating a certain degree of pique 
that the National University and the Dublin University should have the same representation. O'Rahilly, as usual, got his way. In the Senate, this issue of an overly academic bias in the proposed council was raised by Senator Foran, who wondered why the INTO had not been included, and suggested, I think it is class legislation. Naturally, the national school teachers are more in touch with the masses of the people than are the representatives of the universities. Frank Gardner, author of A History of Public Library Legislation, maintained that the composition of the council reflected a 19th century view of public libraries in affording space to elite academics rather than public representatives and library users. Though by the early 1960s, seven of the 13 members of the Library Council were practising librarians. There was merit in Gardner's criticisms, but they overlooked the responsibility of the Library Council for the Irish Central Library for Students, which necessitated the involvement of the academic sector and the fact that the Library Council was established as an expert body for public library development, which necessitated strong professional representation on the Council. While in Scotland and England, the Carnegie Trust handed over their equivalent central student libraries to their national libraries, in Ireland it fell to the local authority sector through the Library Council rather than the National Library of Ireland, which came under the auspices of the Department of Education. Regarding length of tenure, Barrington was quick to suggest that members of the Library Council should be appointed for a fixed term and not for life, as there would, he wrote, be a danger that the Council would have ineffective members whom it would be difficult or invidious to remove. Significantly, given the widespread criticisms that were being made regarding the increased centralisation of local government, it was also noted we should regard the Central Library Council as an ancillary to the local libraries, not as a substitute. It would burden the bill with a controversial section if we foreshadow the possibility of the Central Library superseding the local libraries. The idea of a non-elected council regulating the expenditure of local authorities would be, he felt, giving one more indication of the trend which is so bitterly attacked. This also explains why the real emphasis on the Library Council's role was advisory. It could not compel a local authority to improve its library services. The library service was also inevitably affected by wider developments in local government in the 1930s and the 1940s, particularly the introduction of the management system, which repealed a county council's right to delegate powers to a library committee. Executive functions could now only be delegated to a committee by county managers, who were not disposed towards following this course. In consequence, library committees appointed after the introduction of the management system were purely advisory bodies. In 1945, a critic writing in the Bell magazine suggested that the introduction of the management system implies a rather awesome admission of failure, an admission that we were not, in some respects, fit for self-government. In any case, the main emphasis on the provision of local services in the 1940s and 1950s was in the areas of housing and healthcare, which meant there was little priority given to education and libraries. In the 1948-9 local government financial estimates, for example, 88% of expenditure was allocated to housing. But had the money been available, would the interest have been there to prioritise the development of libraries? Sean McEntee suggested in a letter to the Minister for Finance concerning the proposed library bill that the defects in the public library service were not due to the inability of local authorities to meet charges but what he called the unenlightened attitude of those authorities in the matter.
Childers seemed more ambitious and farsighted in relation to library development than many of his local authority contemporaries. In his memos on the subject, he pointed out that, given the large sums which were being granted to the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, the National Gallery, the Abbey Theatre and the Royal Irish Academy, to name but a few, it was high time grants were being paid to develop libraries. In invoking the case of such established national institutions, he was elaborating on the fact that his original idea was for a body that would have much wider ranging responsibilities, or in his own words, an advisory centre for national adult education and recreation. But it was also interesting that Childers suggested the library service was not particularly appropriate to the Department of Local Government and Public Health. It looks, he wrote, as if we came on it only through historical accident and that it should have come under the auspices of the Department of Education. But tellingly, he also wrote that he would not like to see the obscurantist section of that department start interfering with the work of the Central Library or the Library Surveyors. He also stressed that there was a need to keep the approach to library services tame because, he wrote, if we were to use this accident to raise the wider issue of adult education, we would go far outside our proper sphere and meet with opposition from the Department of Education. This admission served to illustrate the difficulties underlying his bold claims in the Dáil about the Public Libraries Bill providing the new nucleus for an adult education movement. Nonetheless, Childers was genuinely of the belief that competence in agriculture and an improvement in education were the two most important challenges facing the state and that libraries had a key role to play in rectifying ignorance in these areas. The two were mutually complementary in his thinking. He no doubt shared a widespread belief that it was the job of the county librarian to recreate a love of the land and undo in some measure the perceived baneful effect of an education system biased towards the urban experience. As he put it in a memo in 1945, prepared for his government colleagues, Many children do not know the names of flowers and have not the most elementary knowledge of botany or zoology. They learn nothing about art or interior decoration and the countryside has no significance for them except in its economic aspects. Education in the national schools has little or no rural bias and the curriculum is already supposed to be overloaded. Ireland needed, he felt, a good dose of the kind of practical rural patriotism evident in Scandinavian countries. But were these aims feasible? Could the Library Council realistically transform the public library system and by extension public attitudes to reading? The first task was to survey the existing situation and on assuming office the Library Council appointed two Irish librarians to survey the conditions of libraries in the 26 counties. The surveys were part financed by the Carnegie Trust. The reports were compiled by Dublin County Librarian Tom Dowling and the already mentioned Dermot Foley. They appeared for the County Libraries in 1955 and the County Borough and Urban District Libraries in 1958. They made for depressing reading. The report for the County Libraries noted that the picture presented by the survey reports is that of a service having great potential but struggling against difficulties, created by unsuitable premises, inadequate and in many cases unqualified staffs, and having too many books of an inferior sort. The total number of books in the county libraries exceeded one million, approximating to 50 books per 100 of the population. 
half were fiction, one-third non-fiction and one-sixth children's books. While there were seven counties with over 75 books per 100 of the population, there were also three counties where the proportion was less than 25. Dermot Foley, author of this report, was more blunt in retrospect when he suggested that the compilation of the report had left him with the view that libraries had either been beaten into the ground by the mediocrities or were in a blue funk from total surrender to them. Having reported in such castigating terms, he said he drew some appreciation in official quarters and nothing but mutterings of treachery from my colleagues. It was not until 1961 that the grants regulations concerning the Library Council's assistance to local authority libraries became law. This meant the Library Council had waited 14 years for the definition of financial aid as it appeared in the legislation. Financial assistance took the form of contributions towards payment of loans raised for buildings, vehicles and expansion of stock. In the first few years, applications submitted to the Council were almost exclusively for grants for library buildings. The Library Council's only opportunity to improve standards lay in ensuring that grants were used correctly. Dermot Foley, as Director of the Council, admitted in 1963, not to put a tooth in it, we had little or no books, buildings or staff. That is the situation the Library Council discovered some years ago, and it is not a great deal better today. The Library Council was still up against cash-strapped local authorities who did not prioritise books, but rather championed resistance to higher rates and radical change in traditional services. In the journal Administration in 1968, Maureen O'Byrne, Chief Librarian for Dublin and a member of the Library Council, argued that the terms of reference of the Library Council were unduly limited by the 1947 Act, and as a consequence she wrote, the role of the Library Council in overall planning has been restricted so much as to be almost passive. In this sense, the Library Council's dilemma was a microcosm of the challenges facing local government administrators in Ireland. The Council did succeed in the early 1960s in persuading Minister for Education, Patrick Hillary, to provide for subsidised classroom libraries in schools, as well as getting the Department of Local Government to subsidise mobile libraries. There was new legislation in the decades following the 1947 Act, including an Act allowing local authorities to charge for public services, and the changing of the grant system to allow the state to pay a share of capital services directly. In the year 1949-50, the total expenditure of the Library Council was under £5,000. By 1998, it was over £500,000. The Library Council continued to play a significant if often understated role in an administrative research and information capacity. But they did not get, nor did they seek, the autonomous powers of bodies like the Arts Council. Such powers were not appropriate to the Library Council, because if they had been given executive powers, they would have contradicted the fact that the responsibility for delivering the library service vested with the local authorities. Money and legislation could, of course, do much, but at the annual conference of the Library Association of Ireland in 1995, Liam Ronane pointed out that after 1963, Sweden had no public library legislation, yet still managed to create one of the best regarded library services in the world. But in such a country, public libraries were seen as part of a much wider quest for equality and solidarity that included improvements in education, 
healthcare and social welfare. In this sense, the aims Irish society set for itself regarding libraries, as with other areas, were far too modest. In Ireland, more than a library council was needed to bring about the revolution in mentality envisaged by people like Dermot Foley, so that, in his words, from being a nation of talkers, we will become a nation of readers who will know better what we're talking about. That was Irish historian Professor Dermot Ferreter and his talk entitled The Post-War Public Library Service in Ireland Bring Books to the Remotest Hamlets and the Hills. Look out for more talks from this series and subscribe to the Davis Now Lectures for talks on a host of subjects where you get your podcasts. The Davis Now Lectures website is rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures. From me, producer Cleon Anne Lund, thank you for listening. Thank you.